0: Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest,
2: You know, I need someone. Oh! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
3: Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician trained in Britain, living in Canada, and who's worked in the U.S. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Our topic is today is safeguarding vulnerable persons in healthcare facilities and the challenges for family caregivers. You know, it's surprising that we even have to talk about safeguarding vulnerable persons in healthcare facilities, because surely that's one of the most important responsibilities of a healthcare facility. You know, we've seen reports of elder abuse in long-term care and similar facilities. Are these the sorts of situations we mean when we talk about safeguarding of vulnerable persons? Are those failures in safeguarding vulnerable persons? We've seen reports of problems like malnutrition and poor care of personal hygiene of people who cannot look after themselves. Are these are the sorts of situations which are failure in what we expect for safeguarding a vulnerable person. And there are continuing questions about the safety of patients. Are these failures in what we expect for safeguarding a vulnerable person? And there are continuing questions about the safety of patients. Are these failures, again, what we would expect for safeguarding of vulnerable persons? And then finally, there's the very difficult question of patients not getting the right health care. Are these failures that we would attribute to safeguarding of vulnerable people? Now, to talk with me about safeguarding vulnerable persons in healthcare care facilities and to highlight the challenges for family caregivers, I guess, is Harry von Bommel, is Executive Director, Legacies, Inc., and President, PSD Consultants. He has a special interest in advocating for more and better safeguards for vulnerable persons in the care of healthcare facilities. Through his collaborative project, Navcare, he helps families who so often are overwhelmed as they navigate the healthcare system. He holds a master's degree in adult education. He's the author of 40 books and a sought-after speaker on caregiving in home and long-term care, hospice palliative care, family and caregiver grief, and spiritual care. He's an advocate for patient care focused on the whole family and centered within the community. And he employs his expertise in helping families to get the care they need for multiple health challenges to coordinate home care and hospital care and the complex situations, to make decisions in a crisis, to cross language and cultural barriers, and to find the care they want. So welcome to the show, Harry.
4: Thank you very much, Gordon.
3: Now, Harry, my first question to you is please tell us about your work with vulnerable people in health care.
4: Uh, it uh, started with um, my taking care of my parents and grandfather at home until they died. And uh, for my parents, it was uh, here in North America, and my grandfather was in holland and For various reasons, they were vulnerable um, in the case of my parents, because of their language. English was not their first language they weren't educated in the same to the same degree that uh, certainly the healthcare professionals were and another uh, longer list of vulnerabilities that made their care more difficult. And I had a political science and history degree, so I was, of course, uh, completely incompetent to do uh, good caregiving when I first started this. Uh, they didn't teach us in uh, history class how to give bed baths or morphine shots or flush catheters or any of those good things that I learned over time. So it was, um, it was a learn-as-you-go kind of process for me.
3: And is that learning as you go, what you transpose into your work with vulnerable people in health care?
4: It, um, it was, because when I started, uh, as I said, I knew very little. And over time, what I learned was that very little information Um, is needed to help people do a much better job. But if you don't have that little bit of information, if you don't know what effective pain control looks like or if you don't know how to talk to a doctor about uh, someone's care, then um, you and the person you're supporting as a family caregiver are at increased risk of not getting the things that you need. In the older days, we have an idealized version, I think, of what we thought our family doctors did for us, and I think some actually did, which was they they were the family advocate. They were the family caregiver. They knew who to talk to, how to ask questions, and how to take those questions and help the families make decisions. That role is almost gone now. And so families are having to take that over um, and becoming not medical experts, certainly, but knowing enough about how to get information, manage that information, and use it to make decisions. And they're doing all of that while they're also watching someone they love go through very difficult times. And um, so that's an awful stressor for people.
3: Right. Harry, you've already mentioned your own um, experience of family caregiving in your own extended family. Is there anything more you would like to say about your own personal experience in family care? Well,
4: aside from the taking care of my parents and grandfather, I've also been very fortunate to help uh, family and friends go through treatment successfully and recover. And certainly the, the home birth of our da- daughter was a huge success. And um, our son, when he was born in hospital, we had a midwife, and she taught me, uh, her name was Holiday Tyson, and she taught me a wonderful thing, which was she, she met me for the first time and looked me in the eye and said, Harry, um, birthing is not an intellectual pursuit. Uh, she, and then she laughed, and then I laughed, and she said, you don't have to read every book ever written on birthing. Uh, that's my job as a midwife. Your job is to be a husband and a soon-to-be father. And that took an enormous pressure off of me and led me to to believe that over time we need to create a midwife-type person who will navigate healthcare systems for all patients and who will take over the job of having to read everything and know everything about every facility in one's community and who the best doctors and the best programs are and allow patients, uh, their families, to, to remain families first rather than advocates and um, that's part of my goal, and through the, our collaborative project, Navcare, is to create such a volunteer or paid position, which we call a healthcare advisor, to go through the system with people and help them identify what's possible, what's not possible, uh, who's getting the best care, and how do we ensure that we are in that group of people who are getting the best care.
3: Very interesting what you said about the sense of having the stress relief relieved yeah. Somebody, your midwife, the midwife, spells out to you, here's my job, says the yeah. midwife, here's yours. Mm-hmm. So you know what you've got to cope with. Uh, I'm mentioning that now because on this show, Family Caregivers Unite, I've heard a lot of discussion about the pressures and stresses on family caregivers who, particularly immediately they're confronted with the needs of family caregiving, To provide family caregiving, are searching for every piece of information they think they need, and it's overwhelming, especially if they use the Internet. So just tell us a little bit more about your concept of the navigator uh, and the the kind of service you provide uh, in that direction.
4: Well, our goal is to provide uh, different ways for people to get the information they need. So some of us... Family caregivers love to know everything ourselves, and so we will provide people with resources. Um, this project is is over the next five years to provide people with the resources that they need to learn whatever it is they want to learn themselves. That's at one extreme where the family caregiver wants to basically be that healthcare advisor role, because some people just like that sense of control. At the other extreme, uh, will be a person a healthcare advisor. Um, Again, either a volunteer through a program or someone that you might hire, as you would a midwife, who will um, either by telephone or over the Internet coach people in what they might want to do uh, around caring for somebody or actually uh, go with the patient to all their appointments and their treatments, uh, ask the questions, take the notes, and help people make the decisions that they need. And this person's main... A knowledge base will be uh, understanding systems in a hospital so if you are being admitted through the emergency ward or you're being admitted through general admissions because you're going in for an operation or some kind of treatment they will understand those processes they will understand how to negotiate for the best care uh, because they know what that looks like at that particular facility and they will help mediate problems as they arrive because uh, almost in everyone's healthcare care situation, something unexpected arises that can cause some conflicts either between the patient and their caregivers or within the family circle, uh, and this person can help mediate those problems.
3: And that takes us into our main, main theme, doesn't it? Because in addition to um, taking that role in, for family caregivers, supportive role of helping them navigate there will be a whole set of questions about what the family caregiver can and should do when the vulnerabilities are such and the safeguarding is such that things aren't going well and they have concerns yeah just very briefly because we're going into the break to pay the rent in a moment please tell me first of all am i right in saying that that yes
4: absolutely and and it's that distinction between what um, families need to do or, um, and how to get help to do that, and but, but also in understanding what makes someone more vulnerable than someone else. And perhaps after the break, we can identify some of those vulnerabilities.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that um, keeps coming up, of course, in relation to vulnerabilities, is the question of hospitals and facilities being so overcrowded that, you literally can 't get any sense out of anybody now, I know that 's a bit hard, but that 's one of the things that I would like to us to discuss. but before we discuss it, do you agree that the overcrowding parents overcrowding of hospitals is a is a complicating factor
4: it's a complicating factor, but it's also uh, because we we uh, fund these programs through silos, so hospitals receive different funding than home care that which receives different funding than long-term care facilities. If we started looking at the patient as opposed to the funding, um, we would find that the overcrowding, I think, would decrease substantially because people would be in the place where they need to be rather than locked up somewhere where they don't need to be because of, of bad coordination, bad communication, and because of funding problems.
3: Okay, we're going to break now because it is time to pay, um, pay the rents, as I say. <clears throat> this is Dr. Gordon-Athelien. My guest is Harry von Bommel. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned, we will be back.
0: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Help, you know I need
2: someone. Help! You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to G at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
3: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our guest, Harry von Bommel. Our topic is Safeguarding Vulnerable Persons in Healthcare Facilities and the Challenges for Family Caregivers. So let's talk about the needs for, first of all, and then the challenges involved in safeguarding vulnerable persons in healthcare. Harry, please give us the picture of the needs for safeguarding vulnerable persons in healthcare facilities.
4: I think people can best relate to this if they just imagine the types of patients who are vulnerable. So if, we, if you were to walk into any um, hospital or long-term care facility, you would fairly quickly be able to identify those people who are getting the best care possible in that situation and those who are not. And typically what that looks like in hospitals, uh, elderly people, people with uh, disabilities, especially developmental uh, disabilities, uh, people who are poor or illiterate or homeless, people whose first language is not English or who are uh, not very well educated, and as a gross generalization, women tend to get poorer care than, than men typically. So all of those um, categories of people tend to be more vulnerable than those who receive the best care. And those who receive the best care typically, again, are people like you and I actually, white men, educated English speakers, um, uh, who are middle, upper class professionals in some way. And... Typically, we tend to get better care now, some exceptions to that would be if if uh, for example, uh, your sister was a volunteer at the hospital and had been there for thirty years and everyone knew her and loved her would she if she, when she came into hospital as a patient would likely get better care than someone that the hospital has never seen before so um, when we look at who gets the best care it 's not just based on socioeconomic background kinds of things it 's also about how well you know the patient or how well the professional staff know the patient uh will affect the kind of care that they get so that's the who's getting the best kind of care and so then the reason why we need safeguards in place and by safeguards I don't typically mean uh, policies and procedures I mean people uh people are best protected by other people and so you need people who understand someone's vulnerabilities um as an example someone who has a disability and can't speak for themselves whether they've had a stroke or uh, because of a condition they've had from birth, such as cerebral palsy, when they go into hospital, people make all sorts of assumptions about what that person can or cannot understand, what that person can or cannot decide for themselves, and who should make those decisions for them. And so typically they have less communications with them and with their families, and more presumptions are made about them and care is then determined based on that presumption. Let me give you a very quick example. In the United States, in uh, the Boston area, there was a homeless woman who was brought into a hospital and um, required a stomach feeding tube, and she was told basically that that invasive procedure um, could be very risky for her, that she might die from it anyway, and wouldn't she prefer to have um, palliative care and just be made comfortable, uh, not fed a whole lot, and sort of just die very peacefully. Uh, this woman had mental health problems as well as being homeless. She thought she was the Queen of England, I believe it was. And so the, the presumptions about her life um, led people to, to suggest to her that she'd just basically die. At about the same time, another woman, much older in her early 90s, uh, was offered the same procedure for the same reasons. She needed a stomach feeding tube. And for her, it was presented as day surgery. She'd be in in the morning, out by lunch, back home uh, where she would be well taken care of. And that woman's name was Rose Kennedy, the mother of uh, President John F. Kennedy. And because of her perceived value and perceived support, the same procedure was presented to her in a completely different way. And that's what I mean by vulnerabilities. People, because of who they are, they are perceived to be somewhat less and therefore receive less, and that's what the danger
3: is. That sounds like healthcare making judgments that it's not empowered or entitled to make, that is, judgments on the value of yes. individuals. Am I right in saying that? You're you're absolutely right. Not
4: only are they not capable, but they are incompetent to do those things. The, one of the most deadly phrases for people who are vulnerable is this phrase, quality of life, because people will make presumptions about what someone's quality of life is and therefore offer them a restricted list of options. And the higher you are valued in the community, the more likely you are to be offered those life-affirming uh, alternative treatment plans than if you are not valued in the community and not seen as is worthy. You will be offered less. And because we are incompetent to measure quality of life of an individual, uh, we should never use that phrase for an individual. We can measure quality of life between people who live in a city versus people who live in a town. Or people who are educated versus uneducated as a population of people. But the term was never meant to be used for individuals. And we have started in healthcare to use that term for individuals in a way to supposedly, uh, ethically restrict, uh, care to them. And that's why it's so dangerous.
3: Right. Can you give us some examples specifically of the way those situations create challenges for um, family caregivers. Now, I realise you've been talking about people who may not have family caregivers, and that may be part of the difficulty, that mm-hmm. uh, cause of the difficulty. But let's talk about those situations where there is a family caregiver, and the s- sorts of situations that you're, you know about mm-hmm. are in play. Um, what are the? Give us some examples of the challenges to those family caregivers.
4: I can uh, talk to you about a. Uh I'll, I'll use different names for people, but an, uh, a friend named Joe, who uh, has a developmental disability, and because of that, he's now 76. He, when he was in his early 20s, his, his family decided they could no longer take care of him at home. And his only disability, really, was um, that he couldn't make change in the family store. So he was a slow learner who couldn't do the math in order to make change. And so he was sent to a psychiatric center, where he lived for over 20 years um, because he couldn't make change in the family store. He had no mental illness at all, um, still doesn't. And uh, while there he had some electric shock treatments, His he had no personal clothing. It was all out of a general bag that everyone shared. Uh, his teeth were removed because it's easier to take care of uh, um, dental hygiene if you don't have teeth. And so when he came out of there, he went into various group homes and such, and now he's in a nursing home. And whenever he goes to hospital, because he has no teeth and because he doesn't actually care what his clothes look like because he's never owned any of his own until recently, um, the presumption in hospital when he first goes in is always that he is a homeless man and that he's an alcoholic. And so um, when I visit him in the hospital, um, one of the first things I help people understand is that he does have a home and that he does have family and friends who care about him. Um, and that he doesn't drink. And immediately how people treat him is different because of that. Because their presumptions were wrong, um, but I don't challenge them, don't try to make that a negative thing, but just sort of highlight for them um, the correct presumptions to make about him. Uh, then their body language, their use of language, uh, verbal language changes, and the options offered to him are different. So that's a very concrete example of how... Um, some, how someone looks and someone's label, in this case developmental disability, um, caused people to do more harm than good in his life. He's had over 50 years of institutional life of one form or of another, and that um, uh, has led to certain behaviors that people find difficult. I just call him a grouchy old uncle type person who... You know, just isn't very happy very often, and with good reason, I think, um, but he's not very different than many other of the people in the nursing home who are also grouchy for very good reasons. So that would does, be one example.
3: Does that point up the role of the family caregiver as a sort of information provider?
4: Yes, it, It's not just the information, but also when they see how we react with him, his family and friends. What that does is a role model. Um, the way to get him to listen best, to uh, receive treatment best. When I visit him in hospital, for example, I always in the first few visits wear a suit and tie and bring a briefcase. And I do that because immediately the presumption is that if someone's visiting him who looks like a professional, then he is worthy of professional care. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's a, a, a... a fair way to treat people, but it is um, a reality that family caregivers need to understand that how they dress when we visit someone in a hospital or a long-term care facility will determine how uh, that person is treated in that facility. So if I come in my typical clothes, I'm a writer, so my typical clothes are sweatpants and a sweatshirt, he would be treated very differently uh, than when I come in a suit and tie. And that's a. Um, it sounds like a superficial thing, but we react positively to people who dress professionally, and we don't do that as quickly uh, with someone who does not.
3: How well understood is what you've just explained by healthcare people themselves?
4: I don't think it's a conscious thing, and I don't think it's limited to people in healthcare. People with developmental or physical disabilities, for example are often treated poorly um, in social services, in restaurants, in workplaces because of presumptions made of them. There used to be a wonderful poster of a man sitting far away in a corner in a wheelchair with his back to the camera. And underneath the caption said, what do you call this man? And then the next photograph is of his face turned around sitting in the wheelchair. And underneath it says, you call him Mr. President. And that's because it's a photograph of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And so the image, until you know uh, something about the person, the image uh, consciously or m- more, more often than not unconsciously determines how you treat a person. And so one of the key roles for a family caregiver, which is why I also encourage them to bring in photographs of the person uh, when they are at their best, so that the person in the bed is perceived to be the person that is most loved in this family circle and that they have many valued roles uh um, that they play at home, whether it be father, grandfather, uncle, friend, brother, uh, volunteer, uh, whatever it might be. You need to draw out the personality of the person and their image so that uh, they receive the care that they deserve.
3: going to stop you there because it is time to take the break, but I want to come back to the things you've been talking about which are powerful. Um, so it's the break. This is Dr. Gordon Adler. My guest is Harry von Gommel. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be back.
2: The Marsh Engel Show. Join the movement to empower yourself with the essentials of feminine power and success and learn how women around the world are becoming more inspired, more influential, and absolutely amazing. Each week, Marsh sits down for an engaging conversation with women who are boldly committed to living their most amazing life. You'll discover ways to step into your greatest vision, deepen your relationships, and unleash your real creative brilliance. Get ready. It's time to jump into the conversation. That's Monday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern for the Marsh Engel Show on the Voice America Business Network.
0: Each week, take a visit inside the locker room of your favorite sport with Dez Clark, Paul Fresh Clark, and Lester Scudder Davis as they bring you sportsmanlike conduct. As a current player, Dez Clark can bring you inside the sports world like nobody can. His co-hosts represent the fans of the sports world. With both points of view on the table, it becomes an engaging and entertaining program, to say the least. Sportsman-like conduct can be heard Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Sports Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. (laughs) VoiceAmerica.com
2: You know I need someone You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now back to Family Caregivers Unite.
3: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Takers Unite and our guest, Harry von Bommel. We are looking at the difficult issue of safeguarding vulnerable persons in healthcare facilities and the challenges that um, arise. So what I want to ask you, Harry, about now are the approaches that you advocate um, for safeguarding vulnerable persons and the sorts of search systems Situations you've been describing. So, what typically are the approaches you advocate to family caregivers?
4: It's a four-sort of step process for me uh, around uh, being most helpful as a family caregiver, and they're summarized by four words: think about situations. So the word think, talk to talk to other people in the family about those likely scenarios, plan for them, and then practice. So, think, talk, plan, and practice. And what that does is start the conversation early as opposed to wait until there's a medical crisis. So if you are a family caregiver of an elder or of a disabled child or of uh, someone who has a chronic condition that is likely to involve them going back and forth to hospital, you and a group of people around that person who love them, whether they be family, neighbors, friends, need to think about the likely scenarios based on what you've already experienced and then talk amongst each other about what alternatives there are. So around elder care, uh, does the person want to stay home? If they want to stay home, how can they be supported at home? Uh, and so that whole conversation and and thinking about those scenarios. And then there needs to be an active planning for those things. If you are caring for a child with a, uh, a serious disability at home who is medically fragile, um, how do you plan to coordinate the various services? This is where the silo funding that I mentioned earlier in the program comes into play because someone who is receiving home care around medically fragile issues um, has to navigate between uh, home care, between service groups that provide care in the home, between volunteer groups that might be coming into the home, uh, entry in or admission to the hospital and discharge from the hospital on a regular basis. All of those things take some planning. And like any good um, action plan in business, if you plan enough, Nothing will ever go according to plan, but at least you'll have some alternatives in place and some thinking in place. And then you need to physically practice, whether it be physical forms of support, having a nurse teach you some bed-bath techniques, those sorts of things, or reading some of my books on those um, skills, feeding someone at home, bathing them, uh, how to get them from one place to another, those kinds of things need to be practiced before you actually need them, just like a good first aid course. Um, and in doing all of those steps—think, talk, plan, and practice—you then um, have um, a sense of confidence, not overconfidence, obviously, but a sense of confidence that you'll be able to deal with many of the situations that are likely to arise. And the more confident you feel, the less intimidated you can be uh, when you enter into a healthcare facility and people start telling you what to do or not to do. Or uh, one of the things I strongly encourage family members, for example. Um, is to stay in the room when someone is receiving their personal care if their loved one is comfortable with that. And the reason is is when my mother was ill and uh, every time she was given a bed bath or fed or whatever in the room, we were asked to leave. And from one day to the next, we were told, sorry, there's nothing more we can do for your mother. You can take her home. And as soon as she arrives home, we are supposed to, from some, uh, I don't know where, uh, from the sky, figure out how to do all those things like give a bed bath. And I can tell you that it's not a natural experience to figure out how to do these things. You make lots of mistakes that feel silly or, or actually painful, and so it, it's much better to learn those things when a professional is doing them, and so not to leave the room when that's happening. That's what I mean by practice.
3: Right. Now, you'd mentioned, you made a point that plan and plan and plan, but things don't always go according to plan. That's correct. So let's talk about the sort of difficulties that... Arise with the approaches you 've described, that is to say, when we 've planned things aren 't going according to plan um, what 's the next step um, But to understand that, could you just give us a quick example of where something might not be going right and with one of the approaches you 're talking about, mm-hmm. and then say what the next step would be?
4: Uh, in the case of my father, he was in a rehab center. Um, because he had a lung uh, chronic obstructive lung disease uh, and emphysema. And so he was. we had planned for him to be there for a number of weeks to get therapy and whatever before he came home. While he was there, he had experienced a major seizure, uh, which was life-threatening. And so because it was a rehab center, they had no emergency services. So he was rushed to hospital, which is where I met him. And because we had not envisioned that as a possibility, The doctor uh, asked for a number of tests to be done. But because we had done some thinking of what kind of life my father wanted in his last uh, months of life, um, I asked the question, which was, what would, what will this, uh, if they want to do a brain biopsy, for example, what would this test do that would change his treatment? And the doctor said it wouldn't change his treatment. We would just know what kind of cancer we were dealing with because the seizure was from a a, uh, tumor. And so we declined the test, which upset the doctor considerably because they wanted to practice uh, doing brain biopsies. It was a teaching hospital. But he only had a few months left of life anyway, and he was he would have had to been put on a respirator for this test afterwards. So it made no sense to put him through that extra pain. So by planning, and that question was more luck than anything else, but now that I know it's those kinds of questions that need to be asked, it's knowing having a list of the types of questions you need to ask before any test that would make people more comfortable even in situations that weren't um, anticipated. So that's part of that planning process is to have a list of questions that can be most helpful to you no matter what the situation.
3: Right. Now, of these, I'm going to call them navigation, planning, and those all these things you've been talking about, they say more about what you do in your professional work that fits into the approaches you've been talking about. In other words, what kind of services are you offering?
4: Ours is a nonprofit a group, and the Care is a collaboration between about a dozen different organizations. And We've just started recently, so what we're doing is building a database of resources for people to access to a list of questions, for example, to ask before a test or an operation, Um uh, basic uh, nursing, home nursing kinds of information for family caregivers, those types of things. And then uh, right now it's all volunteer work done by all the different groups working together. Uh, we are um, looking for funding to then to develop the curriculum for a healthcare care advisor so that uh, the people who want to do that either for themselves within a family or to have a volunteer or uh trained professional do that will have some confidence that the uh, what they've learned to uh, will be what is most helpful to them as a healthcare advisor.
3: That's so it. services
4: yeah. right now are all on a volunteer basis. People write or call me, uh, and I get as best advice as I can. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, but I ask, I, I do have some sense of the questions that people need to ask and who they need to ask them of. For example, I rarely tell people to talk to doctors about, um, prescription alternatives. I suggest they first talk to a pharmacist. Uh, who has a better sense of the various complications when people are taking a dozen different kinds of medications and one new one uh, is suggested to be added to that
3: regime. Right. Now, just quickly, I'm going to ask you a totally different sort of question. In all this involvement you have with family caregivers, in your work, extended family, and that experience, what are or were the things that really caused the sun to shine for you
4: Um, caring for people um, is is a roller coaster there, there are very high highs that you will never experience in anything else that you do and lows because of the frustration with bureaucrats and policies and procedures and forms and all the rest of it but what makes it worthwhile is those conversations that you have with people that you normally wouldn't have uh, about life, about philosophy, about family memories but what makes me smile the most is when someone just looks into my eyes and I into their eyes where they squeeze my hand. And there's a genuine acknowledgement between the two of us that we're doing something together that is making their life better uh, for however long they're living or as they recover whatever. But there's a genuine connectedness um, that is very rare that we sometimes only associate with a kindred spirit. But when you're caring for people, it's amazing how many kindred spirits you have out there.
3: That kindred spirit connectedness, seems to me something that um, healthcare people themselves should have but probably never have had or if they have had it have lost it Um, uh, we're going into a break any moment now but do you agree that this is something that you've been talking about the connectedness is a desirable feature of healthcare people or is it just a matter that they don't have time and therefore family caregivers and others should provide it what do you think quickly?
4: I think healthcare people crave it I think many of them are burnt out not because they're working harder or longer hours, but because they don't have that connectedness with the people they're caring for or their families. Uh, I think it's something we all crave. It's something that's often discouraged uh, professionally to bond with a patient like that. I think that's just silly. I think if we, anything that we can do to help people connect in that way, and that can be through the simplest things. Our, uh, when my son was born in the hospital, there was a nurse who maybe over 30 seconds connected to us perfectly by saying your, your uh, baby will be born tonight no matter what it, anyone else tells you. And she was right, and she was lovely. And it took 30 seconds, and she just looked in our eyes, and we looked in hers, and, and I'm still grateful 18 years later. So clearly it doesn't take a long time.
3: It's, you're still connected. Absolutely. Now we are going into the break. Um, this is the time once more. This is Dr. Gordon Aveley and my guest is Harry von Bommel. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety channel. Um, stay tuned because we're coming back. And as we come back, we're going to talk about what needs to be done um, to bring some of the things that Harry's been talking about um, into action in such a way that they get more and better support. So we'll talk to you then.
0: You want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Help,
2: you, know I need someone. you are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at my. M-O-N-A-M-I dot Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
3: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our guest, uh, Harry von Baumont. Our topic is Safeguarding Vulnerable Persons in Healthcare Facilities and the Challenges for Family Caregivers. So, now I want to talk about how more and better support for family caregivers concerned about vulnerable family members can be organized. And I want to put you on the spot, hmm. Harry. I'm going to say, let's suppose you're a politician standing for election on a platform of support for family caregivers uh, in the circumstances we're talking about. I want to know, first off, what would be the three most important messages you'd want to get across to voters?
4: As a typical politician, I I will uh, um, take your question and add something to it, which is I'll give you three things that I think patients need to know and and have done for them, because if you have better care for patients, family caregivers are supported, and then three quick things for family caregivers. For patients, they need to have pain and symptom management as their fifth vital sign after a nurse takes your heart rate and your pulse and temperature and those things. Uh, we are very poor at regulating people's pain and symptoms, and that makes for a very difficult life for family caregivers who, without uh, sufficient information, don't know how to take care of um, bed sores and those sor- sorts of things. So pain and symptom controls is a fifth vital sign. People who take care of our, our loved ones need to wash their hands more. It sounds so simple and yet so many of them are getting infections in hospitals because of poor hygiene it's just inexcusable and very easy to to, uh, to stop and the last thing for the patients is we need to stop seeing them as uh just separate conditions uh, many people have uh for example they um, a person with arthritis may then also get cancer and might may have a, a mental health condition may be suicidal because of their condition or because of other reasons typically now in our system that's four different funding groups, and at least four different medical specialties, most of whom never talk to each other. So we need to get rid of the silos of healthcare and how we fund them. For the family caregivers themselves, they need to get information when they need it um, at any time of the day or night. So we need many more uh, telephone and Internet supports for them so that they have someone they can ask very specific questions of at 3 in the morning when they are most frightened. Uh, they need help navigating the systems. They're just too cumbersome. If you walk into any major university teaching hospital anywhere in North America, you are overwhelmed just by the size, by the numbers of people, um, and just going to the reception desk isn't helpful enough. You really do need people to help you with that. And lastly, family caregivers need financial support, especially if it's a long-term caregiving situation. Uh, for example, taking care of a disabled child who's medically fragile, or an elder who is chronically ill and and but still likely to live another five or ten years, uh, families are are becoming financially devastated by a lack of um, financial supports. So they're getting losing their jobs, or at least one of the if there's a married couple, one of the two might have to give up their job to do the caregiving. Um, if we put that person in the hospital, we will spend thousands of dollars a day taking care of them, and yet we haven't figured out a way to uh provide funding for families to provide that support at home much cheaper and in a much loving and more compassionate way. That goes back to that funding of silos. Uh there's lots of money in this system for uh, certain things but not much for other things, not just because they're they're uh, in different uh, packages of funding and they, that needs to be gotten rid of.
3: In your what you've just said is there's money in one place, yes, but not in another. Yeah. So you're arguing for reallocation of those funds and of course health care is always
4: yeah, sharing, well and it's it's a very very quick example. A friend of mine has acquired brain injury because he fell uh, in the fall. We spent hundreds of thousands of dollars saving his life in intensive care. Um, and now have no funding to find him a place to live because he has an acquired brain injury and can't live on his own uh without some support. That that's just illogical. So it's, it's more than reallocation of funding. I think it's it's a, a, a reorientation to looking at a person as a whole first and then figuring out where the pots of money need to come from in order to provide that person uh, with um, a home and the kind of care that they need.
3: Harry, it's a very compelling argument, but of course health care, especially the expensive sort of health care, you know, which is Breaking new ground, it's doing research, it's the kind of brain uh, testing, brain biopsy mm-hmm. you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, in the nicest possible way, I would say they have very ra- loud voices and, and governments tend to listen to them. Yeah. What are the arguments you're going to put to governments to say, hang on a minute, those people are doing good work, but there's also other good work which needs doing as well. What are the arguments?
4: Well, I've just made them to a House Committee on Health Care, and um, it, it divides into two categories. Half of the platform of six things that I just mentioned to you um, don't require money, uh, don't require new money. Uh, effective pain and symptom control is a vital sign, doesn't cost more. Washing your hands um, doesn't cost more. Getting people the information they need in a better and organized way doesn't cost more. It just takes the budget that you have and uh, make sure that you use it wisely. The silo funding will save money. Once you look at people as a whole, you stop um, so much of the redundant testing that people do. So if you have um, arthritis, as I said, and cancer and possibly are suicidal, you'll have all sorts of tests redone over and over again because the people aren't talking to each other and the testing, the files don't get from one person to, uh, from one specialist to another. So getting rid of the silo will actually save money. Financial supports to families, could come out of those savings that we will have by uh, reorienting the financial planning of healthcare. There's a experiment in one of the western provinces in British Columbia of Canada uh, looking at completely reorganizing the budget of healthcare. Now, it's an exercise as opposed to what they're actually going to do, but they're going to start from scratch with the billions of dollars they have and see how, if you start from scratch from a patient patient-centered model, what would it look like at the end? And we need to do those models do those tests and then start changing things and the last one helping people to navigate the healthcare systems again will save an enormous amount of redundancy there are excellent examples in uh, north america of people going into facilities getting expert care and within a day or two all the tests that were needed for that person around breast cancer for example were done from morning till night and at the end of the first day all tests were done which in other situations can take weeks, if not months, of expensive travel back and forth, tests, uh, specialist appointments, all of those sorts of things. That can be changed almost overnight. So all of what I'm suggesting won't actually cost more. It will cost less. And then we can spend some of that money helping family caregivers take care of their loved ones at home.
3: Harry, I'd vote for you. Thank now, you. unfortunately, we've run out of time, so I want to say, first of all, thank you to our listeners. Please email us with your comments and questions, and I'll, I'll pass those on to, to Harry, um, because I'm sure that he'd be very pleased to hear from you. Absolutely. I want to say thank you to Harry for sharing us sharing with us your experience, your insight, your advice. And I, I just want to say, what you're saying and doing, and I'm a retired physician, Strikes me as profoundly important um, because I've heard on this show and many physicians and many people in healthcare have also heard of the way in which the burden on family caregivers financial and otherwise becomes very harsh and very unfair so mm-hmm. please keep up your good work now in, your ne- in our next episode we're going to be talking about helping family caregivers in providing support in the home care situation So please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then.
2: Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.